I've chosen uh, for my text this morning uh, from God's Word, the book of Galatians, chapter 3, and um, verse 1 through 14. So if you'll turn to Galatians 3, verses 1 through 14. And let us uh, rise as we hear God's word. <clears throat> oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet, the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs upon the tree that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, how this book of Galatians sets forth the doctrines of grace with such clarity and precision. Lord, 
Open our minds to hear your word. Open our hearts to believe it. And enable us, Lord, to live in accordance with this word, rejoicing only in the grace that has been granted to us through Christ Jesus our Lord. We praise you for his mercy. Holy Spirit, now be with us and enlighten us and bless us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I suspect that many of you know the background of the book of Galatians, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about that. But in chapter 3, we come to the Apostle Paul's uh, reaction uh, to the teaching that has been going on in the church of Galatia in his absence. Apparently, there were a group of people who came after Paul They've been called the Judaizers, and they were telling the Galatian church that um, salvation uh, depends upon a commitment to Jesus Christ plus obedience to the works of the law. By the law throughout this message today means the moral law, the Ten Commandments of God. And it wasn't that they completely abandoned grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It was that plus that they added. And it was beginning to confuse the church at Galatia. And it's so on that background that the Apostle Paul is writing. He's addressing believers or those who say they're believers in Christ. He's addressing the church. And he starts off with this amazing condemnation. You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Who has deceived you? Who has taken away from you the concept of being saved by grace through faith alone in Christ Jesus? In this text that I've chosen, which is embedded in a few chapters in, uh, in chapter 3, beginning at verse 10, the Apostle Paul starts off addressing the church. And he explicitly says that if any person is cursed by God, if if that person continues to believe that by his efforts to obey God, he can merit eternal life. Because you see, that's what's going on here. There's a confusion in the church. A confusion about whether salvation is by grace, or whether by grace through faith in Christ, and Christ does it all. Or if there's something I need to do in addition to what Christ has done. 
And Paul wants to have nothing of this. He wants no one at the church in Galatia to be deceived. Because you see, the minute you begin to think that there's something you do in obedience to God's word that is is something that um, allows you to claim a certain merit before God, the minute that happens, you're going to go further and further away from trusting in God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You're going to begin to think, it's what I do. Jesus, okay, I got that part. But now, I've got to continue. I've got to continue to be obedient that God will look with favor upon me because of my obedience. And I want to disabuse all of you of that because that is not the gospel. That will destroy you. That will take you away from Christ. That will remove you from fully trusting in Him and depending upon Him for all that He has done. He has given us a marvelous salvation. And I emphasize given. And I emphasize marvelous. It's beautiful. Because you see, in and of ourselves, there is nothing, nothing you can do, nothing you can say, that can save you. It's only when God in His goodness and His mercy opens your deadened mind and heart to the glorious grace of the gospel in Jesus Christ that you begin to feel life and you begin to feel freedom and you begin to live as a human being that God created you to be. Loving him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Loving your neighbor as yourself. And not boasting in that, but boasting in the glory of God's salvation in Christ. I don't boast of anything that I have because I'm a Christian. There's nothing. All my righteousness is as filthy rags. That doesn't mean I don't seek to serve God. It doesn't mean I don't work to bring glory to his name wherever I am and whatever circumstance I'm in. But it does mean I'm not trusting in any of that. Those kinds of works are the natural outflow of what it means to be a Christian. Loving God and serving God and his people. And reaching out to the lost who are yet to be his people. And so, <clears throat> this, is, this is hard stuff. <laughs> it really is. I mean, the, it's not that... It, it, the Apostle Paul understands the danger 
And that's why he uses these phrases. Cursed is everyone who doesn't continue to do all that is written within the law of God in order to be saved. And it's not simply God who's writing this, but it's, excuse me, it's not simply Paul who is writing this, but it is God through Paul that is saying this this morning. And every morning when this text is read. Let's look at the warning in verse 10. And then we'll look at the blessing that follows afterwards. Verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written. Cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book in the book of the law, to do them. The word for, as it begins in verse 10, signals a contrast with something that came before. And the something that came before is found in verse 9. It's a reflection upon Abraham. And it's a reflection upon Abraham's faith in particular. In verse 9 we read, So then, they which be of faith are blessed with Father Abraham. Blessed and faith. Cursed and works of the law. Eternal life by faith. Cursed by human effort to save. Definitely, Paul is addressing the Judaizer heresy and the attempt at Galatia to steal away God's people from the truth. God gave faith to Abraham to believe what God had promised him. In faith, Abraham... Not once, not twice, but routinely throughout his life committed himself to that, those promises of God. Even when the fulfillment of God's promises seemed impossible or far off into the future. You remember, as God promised Abraham a son, an heir, Well, it was many years afterwards before that happened. You remember when God, once that child was born, when Isaac was born, God addressed Abraham and told him to take him and sacrifice on on the Mount Moriah. Did Abraham not uh, do that? Of course not. He did it. He went and went through all the motions of sacrificing his son, believing, as Hebrews tells us, that God could raise his son from the dead. Abraham understood that God had given to him a promise, a promise that in his seed, 
all the nations of the world would be blessed. Abraham understood and he believed and he acted in faith. Now that doesn't mean to say that Abraham was perfect. But you do see in Abraham's life a firm commitment to God in all things that God had told him to do because Abraham believed God. And as Genesis 15 verse 6 says, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Do you, do you remember when that, what, what was the occasion when that comment was made regarding Abraham? It was dark out. And God took Abraham outside and he said, look up at the sky. Look at the sky. Look at the stars. So shall your seed be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, even though at the time that sure didn't seem possible. But you remember, God provided a sacrifice instead of Isaac. God was in the business of fulfilling his promises. Abraham was in the business of believing God's promises. Not because Abraham was smart, smarter than everybody else. Not because he was more righteous than anybody else. Not because he was living his life <clears throat> trying to earn his salvation but because he believed God. Because he believed God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham's belief then had as its ultimate focus not merely Isaac as his heir, but it had as its ultimate focus the seed of Abraham. The seed of Abraham, his ultimate heir, the person who would actually bless all the nations of the world. You see, it wouldn't be Isaac. It would be someone else. Someone a lot longer in generation from Abraham's, a number of generations from Abraham's time. If you look up at Galatians chapter 3 verse 6, or excuse me, verse 16, just a little bit outside of the passage this morning, it says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He doesn't say unto seeds as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, and to your seed, notice, who is Christ. Who is Christ. So when Abraham looked up in the stars, and God said, God promised, so shall your seed be as numerous as the stars of the sky. 
Abraham believed that God was going to bring a seed from his loins, from his generation, who would make that promise real. And I'm not, you know, I'm just, this is not fantasy. This is reality. And this is just such an amazing passage of God's word. The Lord Jesus himself, millennia after Abraham, would confirm, would confirm that the fact that Abraham had a focus in this seed, and that seed was himself. He would confirm it when he said in John chapter 8, verse 56, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. See, I'll just go a little step further. The focus of Abraham's faith we now know, was Christocentric. By that I mean, he believed in Christ, even though he didn't know his name. But he believed that God would bring about blessing to all through his seed. And that's precisely what the Lord Jesus has done. As he gathers in the nations to himself, Without the same faith in the person and work of Christ, no one will see God. No one will be forgiven of their sin. And no one will hear God declare them righteous before him. The way of works is not the way of faithful Abraham. It is the way of the wicked. It's the way that God has repeatedly condemned. Notice it says in verse 10, it is written, cursed. This isn't the first time it was written that way. If you go back to your Bibles, go to Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 26, you'll find the same phrase. It is written, cursed, or as many as who follow the works of the law in order to be saved. And I want, to, I want to be very, very clear. Very clear. And I hope nobody's confused. And the, and the text will continue to clarify what I'm about to say. It's not that we don't seek to live a godly life that I'm concerned about. That's not my point. My point is I'm trying to address anyone that believes that there's something that they do to save themselves. That's the person I'm targeting. I do not believe that is the way of salvation. And I don't care what anybody else says. We are reformed in our thinking and our understanding. And that means everything is by God's grace. Not of works, lest any of us should boast. 
We are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Not of works, lest any of us boast. Merit, salvation is just another way of saying works. The teaching that no one is righteous enough to merit salvation never originated with Paul. It came from God, as I mentioned before, as our text declares. Why is it that you can't be saved by your works? Why is it that so many out there think that they can? So many out there in the world, and even the church, think that I'll do the best I can. I'll try to be good. And God will accept me. Where does that come from? That's not what this text says. You see, God's standard of holiness is far more demanding than any standard of holiness that we have. Notice again in verse 10. Notice how these phrases and words pile on to one another. Cursed is everyone that continues not in all things written in the book of the law, to do them. One phrase compounded upon another. Continue all things to do. The Westminster Confession of Faith in the Shorter Catechism amplifies the meaning of what what it means to continue to do all things continually. Let me just read question and answer 141 of the larger catechism. And I'll just take one of the things written in the book of the law, the commandment, thou shalt not steal. The question is, what are the duties required in the eighth commandment? The duties required, and the answer, the duties required in the eighth commandment are truth, faithfulness, Justice in contracts and commerce between man and man, rendering to everyone is due. Restitution of the goods unlawfully detained from right owners thereof. Giving and lending freely according to our abilities. To the necess- meeting the necessities of others. Moderation of our judgments, wills, and affections concerning worldly goods a provident care and study to keep, to get, keep, and use and dispose those things which are necessary and convenient for the sustentation of our nature and suitable to our condition or other like engagements and endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as their own. That's what the writers of the confession had to say, but the duties are of thou shalt not steal. Now, granted, the confession is not uh, the primary standard, but these things are based upon the word of God, which is our primary standard. 
what are the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? Which is the next question. And I won't read all of them. But I commend this to you because if you go to the larger catechism and you look at all the commandments, the same long paragraphs are attached to each one of them. But what are the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are theft, robbery, man-stealing, and receiving anything that is stolen, fraudulent dealing, false weights and measures, removing landmarks, injustice, and unfaithfulness in contracts between man and man or in matters of trust, Oppression, extortion, usury, bribery, vexatious lawsuits, and I've only read half of it. I did that. I hope you see why I did that. Cursed is everyone that doesn't continue to do everything that is written in the book of the law. Who can measure up to the standard? Do you want to stand before God and say to him, I have kept all things written of me in the Eighth Commandment? Do you want to stand before God and say, every second of my life, in all my thoughts, and in all my words, I have fulfilled that commandment? And then who wants to stand before God and say, I am righteous enough to enter into your kingdom. Will you dare to say to that God, our judge, the righteous judge of all men, will you dare to say, I have kept all the law since my youth? Remember the rich young ruler? One thing you You see, it's an impossible standard. Impossible to keep. God, you know, when, when I was in college many, 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 many years ago, uh, we, you know, I had this chemistry professor, and boy, I was thankful that he graded on a curve. God does not. It's 100% righteousness all the time, in everything. This isn't the first time God has said this. He continues to keep saying it. Leviticus chapter 26 also speaks of this issue. Deuteronomy chapter 28 also speaks of this issue. And now Galatians chapter 3 speaks of it. Because you see, it's so insidious. It's so insidious to think that there's something I must do. We want to take charge of our lives. But you can't take charge of sin. You cannot control it. It's a deadly monster that lives within all of us. 
by nature. Yes, God's standard is far more, far as infinitely more um, righteous than ours. God has explicitly condemned every attempt to earn salvation and gain eternal life on our own. He goes further to say, verse 11, No man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Another way of saying the just shall live by faith is Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Do you realize that that statement, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness is found four times in the Bible? Once in Genesis chapter 15 where it first occurs But then it's found three more times in the New Testament. Romans 4 verse 3. Galatians 3 verse 6. And James 2 verse 23. I think God is trying to tell us something about living by faith and not by works. One might ask, and it was asked by even a Paul in our text, just outside our text, well, what was God's purpose in giving us the law in the first place? And we don't have to speculate on what that purpose was or what it is. Because he answers it in verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? Answer, it was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. You know who the seed is. The law was added because of transgressions. In other words, it was added to kind of control wickedness and sin. But when the seed comes, the seed of the promise, who we know is Christ, some other arrangement is made. And that's found in Galatians 3 verse 24 and following. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. The law, our tutor, the law was to instruct us. The law was to make it clear to all of us that we cannot keep it perfectly. When the seed comes, when Christ comes, faith in him, 
is what matters. Why? Why does that matter? It's because, it's because there is one man who has kept the law perfectly. He has done everything in the book of the law and he continued throughout his life to do everything in the book of the law. He did everything in accordance with God's standard of righteousness. In everything he thought, everything he did, everything he said, everything was done to God's glory. He never sinned. There was one man. And his name is Jesus. You remember how he said in Matthew chapter 5, not one jot or tittle shall pass from the law until it is fulfilled. The jot in Hebrew is a dot. <laughs> One of the smallest possible letters. And the tittle is next to it. as the next smallest letter. And so Jesus was very much saying there, it will be fulfilled. Everything about it will be fulfilled. And then what God does, when, there, when, when the individual comes to faith in Jesus Christ, he doesn't necessarily understand this, but what happens is, when there is a true conversion, when God brings the gospel of grace into a person's heart, and when that gospel of grace overcomes the desire to sinfully try to save themselves, trusting only in Jesus Christ. What God does is he gives you Jesus' righteousness. He imputes Jesus' righteousness to your account. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that fantastic? We who are dead in our transgressions and sins... God gives us His righteousness. And we are justified in His sight by faith. That doesn't mean we're not going to sin. It doesn't mean we're going we're to be perfect all of a sudden. But before God, the judge of all men, you are safe in Jesus because God now sees you through the righteous blood of his obedient son and the righteousness that you could never have. He has given to you. You're being recreated by the, by the sanctifying Holy Spirit into Christ's image. Each and every day, you're becoming more and more like Jesus. You won't be perfect in this life. But you're standing before God. You're official, judicial standing before God. You're just in His sight. And that opens up 
all kinds of joy to serve him. You live for him. You serve him. You do his will because of all that he has given you in Jesus. And it has nothing to do with earning your salvation, but it has everything to do with giving glory to your Lord and Savior. Do you notice that Paul doesn't leave the Galatians under the curse? He goes on and he says in verse 13, the good news, which I just talked about, went ahead of myself. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on the tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Christ was made a curse for you. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he was made a curse for you. And all of your sin was heaped upon his head at Calvary. And he fully took upon himself that curse. The curse of all of his all of his chosen people. He willingly took God's curse for my sin and for your sin upon himself. He didn't do it kicking and screaming to the cross. He went willingly. He went willingly for you. He went willingly for us. No matter what your station of life is now or what it is was, he paid the price for your sin. That's blessing. Because we all deserve the curse. And this is why Paul is so adamant in trying to dissuade the Galatians from this foolishness of believing that somehow they contribute to the salvation. How can anyone believe that those who are dead in their transgressions and sins have anything in that deadness to offer God? that would qualify as righteousness. I exhort you this morning to say along with me, glory to God for Jesus. Glory for his mercy. Glory for redeeming me and you from his curse which I rightfully deserve for my foolish heart of unbelief. 
Glory to God that in the hallway of eternity before the foundation of the world, he appointed Jesus, his own son, to bear your curse. Glory be to Jesus, the God-man, who has given you, by faith, his perfect righteousness. The only righteousness, the only righteousness that God receives. So I exhort you to believe only on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For then God blesses you by imputing to you Christ's righteousness. I'd like to close with one comment. I have been working through J. Gresham Machen's Christianity and Liberalism. I've been teaching a class on it at our church. And if you've never read it, I would exhort you to read it. If you want to know why the church is how the church in general is where it is today, if you want to know why our culture is where it is today, read the book. Read the book. But Dr. Machen understood Galatians was one of his favorite books. He has a commentary on it. And Dr. Machen sums up everything I have said this morning on his deathbed. On his deathbed, he wrote to his good friend, Professor John Murray at Westminster Seminary. He sent him a telegram from Bismarck, North Dakota, right before the beginning of January 1st, 1937. And he said, Thank God for the active obedience of Jesus Christ. No hope without it. And my brothers and sisters, that is being faithful to God's promises, even unto death. Amen. Let us pray. Great and gracious, holy God, accept now our prayers and our, and our praises and our thanksgiving, Lord, for the marvelous, redemptive work of your Son, who not only saved us from the curse and saved us from the penalty and power of sin, but also has made us new creatures with a new life, with a new hope, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus. Continue to be with us now, Lord, as we celebrate the Supper of the Lord. 
being reminded once again through this picture which you have given to us of the reality of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.